Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So the tension is increasing. As we saw in podcast number 11 in our U.S. history series, that the tension finally broke out to violence. We examined the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, which took place almost four years later, followed by the coercive slash intolerable acts that we discussed, leading then that podcast discussion to beg the question, is the next step revolution? That's when, again, retrospectively, our first Continental Congress met in Carpenter's Hall on October 26, 1774, and issued the Suffolk Resolves, which we talked about as well. We looked at the colonial population, stressing that, again, very few were advocating independence. They did not want a war with Great Britain, to the point that that evolved our first two political parties, the Tories and the Whigs. And then finally, I I ended the podcast by reminding the listeners that, that the revolutionaries had those two huge assets on their side, one being time and the second being space. So with that podcast ending, is the next step then war? But the fact of the matter is, it isn't. The conciliatory proposition is what comes next chronologically. The conciliatory proposition was this, no new taxes, and again, this is proposed by the British government, no new taxes if the colonists contribute to the defense of the British North American colonies. Aha, okay, now we're talking. So now we can have a discussion as to what that contribution should consist of. And Britain said, no, 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 don't read between the lines there. We will determine the fair contribution. And once again, to the British colonists, the rebels, this was still too little, and it is clearly much too late. When I get to this point in my college classes, I turn to my students and I put the marker down, or in the old days, the chalk down, and I turn to them and I said, I ask, how many people are getting fed up with this? And they kind of give me a quizzical look. I'm like, come on, is there going to be a war or what? I mean, you you get the violence followed by the resolution. More violence, more resolution. Is there going to be a war or what? And I said, how many are picking up that pattern? And of course, hopefully, and most of the time it does, every hand goes up. I said, then you really are understanding the chain of events as it happened. I'm not interested in my students knowing the exact date that the First Continental Congress met or who was there or even the number of representatives that was there. What I am interested in them knowing 
and I want them to know is that at no time as the American Revolution started, was there just this solid one-way trajectory towards war. In fact, it was the exact opposite. And what I do is on my board, I draw for them from the year 1765 all the way to 1777. I draw that chronological timeline. And then above that, on the far right, I write war versus peace, war versus peace. And then as the timeline goes on, it's one single arrow, but the arrow will go towards war and then comes back down towards peace, up towards war, down towards peace. And that's really the way it goes until eventually the arrow touches the word war. And then at that point, there would be no turning back. But I remind my class, we only know this because we have the advantage of hindsight. And I remind them of that. Our colonists, those on the fence, those that are loyal to Great Britain, and those that are in the rebel group with George Washington and the founding fathers, they don't know that that will be the chain of events. And I, and I tell them to remind themselves of that. So with that, we do get to what is retrospectively our first two battles of the American Revolution. And that is in the state of Massachusetts, and you know it as Lexington and Concord. But please know from the beginning, this was not to be a war or a excuse me, a battle. This was not to be a battle. The British general, Thomas Gage, clearly knew and saw the handwriting on the wall that the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party and the resulting skirmishes that followed were not isolated events. That violence seems to be increasing, or the propensity to it, I should say. That said, the British government gave Gage, General, uh, General Thomas Gage, gave him very common sense orders. If you have a part of the population that seems willing to take up arms against the government, well, then you remove the arms. You just simply eliminate it so that they cannot be seized by the founding fathers, eventually will be known as, or the rebels, right? So Gage and his 700 men marched towards Lexington and Concord with the mission objectives of, the, of, two, of two objectives. Number one, seize any ammunition and bring it back to the coast to Boston Harbor to load onto the British ships so that it is in safekeeping and nobody can get their hands on it, <clears throat> which is a danger to themselves and others. It's actually a very responsible set of orders coming from the Crown. Those pieces of ammunition that cannot be brought back are to be destroyed. That is where people read between the lines that the government no longer trusts the population. Seizing them and bringing them back to the ships, well, that can be for purposes of moving them, returning them. A lot of things could be happening for that. But destroying them? You're only doing that. You're only throwing away money if you are that distrustful. The second objective 
was to arrest any rebel leaders. Specifically, we were looking for they were looking for the uh, cousin of John Adams, this being Samuel Adams and John Hancock. And you know that name is, and if not, you'll know that name a lot more, probably more than you might want to know uh, as we get into this podcast and the future ones. So those are the mission objectives. Get on to Lexington, spot any type of rebel leaders, arrest them, bring them back to Boston Harbor, get any ammunition that they can possibly move back, destroy any supplies that physically cannot be brought back. That's the reason Gage has 700 men. Now, again, as I tell you before, I am a, a, a diehard arch-American. I love my country. I, again, I've traveled over 20 countries and four continents. I come back. I'm so glad to be back in America with all of its vices and virtues. But I am going to present this as I do in my classes, giving both perspectives here. Our textbooks, obviously, are American slanted. We get that. But I do want to, again, just explain the other side. The theory is that Gage was looking for a battle, that Gage was looking for a fight. Why would he have 700 men? Well, yes, they were officers. They were soldiers. But they were there because Gage needed the, 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 the manpower. I mean, Gage needed that many men to bring all the supplies from those two towns back to Boston Harbor. He's not going to do that by himself. And U-Haul and Ryder Truck happened to be an enterprise, didn't have any trucks available that day. So they were, you know, kind of forced to walk, get, seize these supplies, and then bring them back. That's the reason there were so many men. Well, then why is it written in the history book that this was a daunting force? Again, think about it. These men, these officers, are the best trained, richest army in the world. Yes, they're intimidating. They have bright red uniforms, spotless, ironed in their way of ironing. They are pressed. They are literally spick and span, to use that term. They are an impressive bunch. They are marching in unison which again was done also for camaraderie amongst the soldiers. Sure, it's a daunting force to see. You'll hear them in some cases even before you see them, depending upon the, uh, which direction that they're coming from, and it's a sight to behold. As a result of these men walking forward, 700 soldiers marching forward, Paul Revere, who was part of the Knight Rider communication system, was sent out, as were a lot of other Knight Riders. And again, this Knight Rider system is a communication organization for communication to alert the following towns and cities and nearby cities and towns of news that is happening on one end of another side of town in another part of the state or what have you or in another colony. So Paul ha Paul. Uh, Revere wasn't the only one that was sent out that particular evening when the soldiers responded. Why do we know him about his famous ride? It's because of the two people that he warned. He was able to catch up with Samuel Adams as well as to find John Hancock. Both of those men wrote Paul Revere's name down, and that's the reason why Paul Revere goes down in our American history uh, uh, books with such high regard. But again, he was one of many that was part of the system, which was actually a moonlighting uh, a way to earn extra money. So remember, again, though, as I say, this is what allowed news to travel throughout the colonies literally within a 24-hour period. A person in Georgia could read a story in the newspaper 
of someone reading in Boston literally the same day if the event was roughly equidistant between Boston and Georgia or a city within Georgia. And so news travels extremely fast. Okay. But supposedly you're saying you read in your history, American history books that the soldiers, the 700 soldiers arrived in Lexington to find British colonists and rebels lined up against them, one army versus another. Well, first off, 700 soldiers doesn't qualify as an army. It is big, but it is not an army. It's not even a division, but it is a sizable force. Uh, that's not exactly what the British soldiers saw lining up, quote unquote, against them. Gage, to his guesstimate, to his best estimate, counted 70 rebel colonists. So you imagine this group of 700 soldiers, again, impeccably dressed with state-of-the-art weaponry, looking at these 70 rebel soldiers. Can you try to picture what these rebels looked like? There's no uniform. Half of them would be lucky to have worn shoes or even a form of a boot. They would be in ragtag clothes. Some of them have weapons, some don't. By weapons meaning perhaps some actually have some rifles or the equivalent. Perhaps a small handheld devices. Some might have held rocks or stones. Others might not have been holding anything. But your general gauge, how do you respond to 70 ragtag British rebels standing in your way? Now, you warmongers listening to this might say, ah, there's your opportunity, charge. Gage doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want a battle. These are not supposed to be the first two battles of the future American Revolution. So he orders his soldiers at ease. Please know that is a significant order. Number one, yelling that out loud in language that everybody can understand is the exact opposite of prepare for battle. At ease also takes away the intimidating sight of 700 soldiers standing in perfect line, ramrod straight, literally as almost as if they were robots. At ease takes away or at least tries to diminish that intimidating sight. The soldiers can lean back a little bit. They don't have to stand perfectly straight. Gage physically wanted to communicate, I am not here to fight. We don't know how much time elapsed between the 70 ragtag rebels and the 700 soldiers standing at ease. This, however, and you're going to roll your eyes when I say this, I get this because I can still think of the brother back at Marist High School and the nun at St. Bernadette Grammar School in Evergreen Park, Illinois, when they made said this phrase, the shot heard round the world, and every time saying it as though it's the first time we've ever heard that phrase, but this was the incident where that phrase was generated. A shot heard round the world was fired. A shot implies violence. A shot means this isn't going down well. The question begged immediately after this incident, who made the first shot? Depending upon your history book that you read, 
if they are extremely slanted, if it's pro-British, it will be a rebel that made the shot. If it is pro-American, it will be one of the 700 British soldiers that fired that shot. Does every incident have to have a group of people or somebody to blame? The bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, we don't know and probably never will know who fired that first shot. If it was the rebels, you mean to tell me that those seven, at least some of those 700 British officers would not have stepped forward immediately after and said, I can identify where the shot came from. Maybe I can even pinpoint the person. If one of the British officers shot the first volley, you mean to tell me that wouldn't have pumped up those 70 rebels? See, I told you they're out to kill us. But neither side stepped forward with any stories that had any kind of continuity. We don't know. Now, I'm not going to leave you here at this point asking the question of, well, then who did? Somebody had to. A shot was heard. And sorry, we can't blame it on somebody's Ford Mustang that backfired. So that idea is out. A shot had to come from somewhere. What historians, both British and American historians, largely have been willing to agree on is that most likely, and I know this may sound comical when you hear this, but most likely, as those 70 soldiers were probably tasting their bile in their mouth, forcing those 700 British soldiers who were wondering, are they going to get out of their way? Are we going to have to shoot them out of, their, of our way? Whatever, this is what they're trained for another day at the office. As those two groups were looking at one another, most likely what happened is that an unsuspecting hunter somewhere off down through a meadow or over a swale, meaning an area of grass that comes up and then goes down, where that hunter had no idea what was taking place on the road behind him or possibly her, saw tonight's dinner saw maybe tonight's dinner and tomorrow night's dinner if it was a big animal that it could bring down and thought nothing more of taking aim of his weapon and firing it, simply hoping to bring the animal down and bring dinner home tonight. Can you imagine after that shot was fired, even if he had killed the animal, the surprise on his or her face when they all of a sudden heard a barrage of gunfire, rifle fire, taking place somewhere nearby and that's essentially the way it took the way it played out the british would continue to open fire and march on to concord after lexington while being shot at mainly in the rear by the end of the day 100 colonists would be killed you might say, hold on, Chris, is that the new math? You said just a few seconds ago that it was 70 colonists lined up. I know. I, even though it's an election year and we get to say things that aren't true and can't prove anyhow, I'm not going to do that to you. I, I will get to that. But 100 colonists would be killed as a result of these two battles. And out of the 700 soldiers, 250 would be sent back home in body bags the equivalent of a body bag, 250 out of 700. For Gage, that is an embarrassing loss. And you say, okay, yeah, I get that, I get that, but how do we get 100 killed out of 70 that were lined up? 
And that's where the true terror set in for Gage and the British Army and Navy. By the time Gage made it back to Boston Harbor, who now looked like a ragtag army as they were exhausted, scared, and, and, and beyond hungry, these remaining 550 officers later recounted, and the numbers were then averaged out, that by the end of the day of those two battles, the British officers were shot at or had rocks thrown at them or sticks thrown at them by an estimated number of over 4,000 colonists. It started with 70, and the number grew to over 4,000. It is beyond an intimidating number on the British side this time, right? Look at those numbers, too. 100 out of 4,000. Now, in the British government's defense, that number 100 was probably a lot higher. There are also, I'm sure, considerable injuries. But what was happening, ladies and gentlemen, is as that massive army of 700 that eventually broke, it fell off to 550, what was happening is that these colonists were hearing about this commotion as this army was making its way through Massachusetts and people were jumping on, for lack of a better way to phrase it, on the bandwagon, taking pot shots at the British officers for X amount of miles down the road before they would peel off and turn back to their homestead. It was a number, it was a rolling number, but a number that also increased by the time they got to Boston Harbor. This situation in April of 1775 is what provoked that group now known as the Founding Fathers that had met the prior October of 1774 to meet once again in a month later, May 10th, 1775. Why? Because this wasn't a Boston massacre. This was more than five people dying on both sides. And it was more than one location. And there's an indefinite number of colonists that actually were taking up arms against the British officers. Folks, people on both sides, the rebels were beyond shaken up, as were the British officers, the British government by extension. This was real battle. Bodies were sent home. People died. So the four objectives at the Second Continental Congress was thus, and I bring these three up right away as I show, as I present them to my students, combine the local militias and volunteers. This is no longer simply a call to arms. Now we need hard numbers and a commitment of how many militia and volunteers from each of the 13 colonies is willing to actually now, to the equivalent of putting their name to paper, and saying that I am a rebel joining the cause. They needed numbers, and they needed to combine them. So that was the first objective. The second was to establish their own independent post office. They could not rely any longer on this Knight Rider system that had been established by the British government. They had to have their own independent form of communication. And that establishment of the post office would be the forerunner of the post office we still use to this day. They also, for what it's worth, at least on parchment, attended to put down an idea of how many 
sailing craft they might be able to assemble and dare they call it a navy so the second objective create that post office and establish that navy third they're going to need more equipment then chances are these 13 colonies are going to be able to produce. They're going to have to buy from uh, perhaps Native Americans. They're going to have to buy goods from the French as well as the Spanish and the Portuguese. With what? So that was this meeting also authorized the production of what became known as is the forerunner for today's currency, the continental dollar, even though for the most part, it was not worth the parchment that it was printed on. The fact that they were, we were attempting to establish our own communication line with the post office, our own army, the first point, local militias and volunteers, establishing a navy, and now attempting to carve out our own economy by establishing our own currency and breaking off from the British pound. So those are the three objectives that would be agreed upon at this meeting of the second, now known as the Second Continental Congress. So I asked my students, what's the fourth one? What's the fourth thing that these founding fathers do? Usually no hands go up, at least right away. But then I pulled the old two points on the next exam, or I give them one of my business cards and I say, just give me this the next exam, and this is your get out, uh, get out of a difficult test question free card. They just simply bring up their exam and they say, I really didn't know the answer to question 30, so I wrote number 30 on your business card and they hand it to me and I simply give them the points for it. So it gets your attention a little bit more, and that's when they'll say, uh, how to deal with the British prisoners of war? I said, no. I said, that was discussed, but I said nothing was changed as they would keep these soldiers uh, basically at bay to be able to trade for their own prisoner, their own soldiers that get taken prisoner of war. But that's a good guess. But rather, and eventually, occasionally a student will get it. And of course, they jump on them with praise because that's right. And they've got this mindset down and they, that, that proves they understand. These founding fathers were not warmongers. They were not looking at any opportunity to make a break for violence. So the fourth one, the fourth objective was what became known as the Olive Branch Petition. And here it is not addressed to parliament. It is addressed specifically to King George III. You see, it's a lot easier to blame one person for something going wrong than it is an entire group of people. Don't believe me? Ask any former president or our current president how often they get blamed, even though it might have been the House of Representatives. It might have been the Senate or collectively both houses. But if it's the same political party, far easier to simply blame one person, the president, than it is the, part, the, the president's party that he or eventually she is affiliated with. So if for that reason, this is addressed directly to King, to King George III. There's also some seeds of genius with this olive branch petition. Go ahead, George. I dare you to reject our petition. That's essentially what they're doing. But that's not to take away the earnestness, the sincerity of this olive branch petition. In summary, the petition acknowledged that both sides for the first time are burying their dead as a result of two battles that neither side had planned on. Will these deaths sober us up? 
Will these deaths give us something now to think about that do we really want to continue to push this envelope of fighting? Will you, King George, finally agree to listen to us, to hear us out, to bring us to the negotiating table from this point forward? Needless to say, as we know, that Olive Branch petition would be rejected by King George III, and he will eventually pay for that dearly. So with that, the fighting therefore continues. In the early fighting, and again, just as I do with my classes, I will not cover the American Revolution any, in a manner that I will also cover the American Civil War, World War I, or World War II. I don't take this battle by battle. I'm looking at the human condition. I'm looking at the commoners, the you and I of society. How did they fare through this time period? If they were at home, how did they fare if they had a weapon in their hands and was right at the battlefront? Those are the types of situations and people that I'm going to be looking at. So I'm going to summarize here that in this early fighting for the remainder of 1775, British General Thomas Gage will be ordered to seize the territory near Boston Harbor. The British Navy needs an access point and it has to be defended with everything that he has. Therefore, the colonists are going to go after that exact same port. And as a result, you have, I'm sure, heard about the Battle of Boston Hill. However, it's really Breed's Hill is the hill of the most notoriety. Gage will attempt to dislodge the colonists that are, that are hunkering down on both of those major high points. And yes, the British will win and they will declare victory. But wait a minute. I, I often remember reading that it was either a truce or maybe that the colonists won. No, the colonists lost then why sometimes is it interpreted as a win? Because of the human cost. And it's not to make light of the dead and injured. But for the colonists, they had 2,400 casualties, 450 dead. For the British officers, over 3,000 casualties, over 1,000 dead, 1,054 dead. How does Gage put that information on parchment and claim to King George III in Parliament, hey, I've got a handle on this. I've got this. He can't. So where does that leave the American rebels at this point? To do the only other thing they can, to now declare independence. And what do they do with that? That's what we'll see at the beginning of our next podcast. Thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsola.com. Feel free to email me with any questions or comments. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.